Does church membership look the same everywhere? That's the question that we're looking at. And so uh, previous two weeks, just a really quick review because it's an important topic. Just uh, what we already have up here on the whiteboard. Matthew 18, the process of church discipline begins with teaching, right? And that's where we should spend the majority of our time. But when some kind of issue arises, the ideal pattern is found in Matthew 18. One person goes to another and confronts about a particular sin issue. We talked last week about some examples of what might be going on with that. If somebody doesn't say hi to you, that's not necessarily a sin issue. Could you potentially still have a conversation? Sure. Just out of a general love and concern of what's going on in your life, can I minister to you, those sorts of things. But we should not assume the first time somebody doesn't say hi that there's some kind of sin issue going on. There could be, but often not. If So it would be something more along the lines of if we see someone lying two or three times, then we say, okay, we need to confront this person about this thing, right? Um, and they say, I wasn't lying. Then it says, okay, two or three other people go along and talk to that same person. Now, to clarify, the two or three others, it's not really specified in the passage, but this is done with a view to helping the person be encouraged toward repentance. This is not done with a view of um, attacking the person or finding two or three close friends so that you can just go and sort of attack the person. Or it's, That's not the, the attitude or the disposition. It's two or three people who are willing to come alongside, pray about the situation, confront the sin, hopefully see the person restored. Okay? Then if the person still does not repent, then the, Matthew 18 says to tell it to the church. The entire church has an opportunity to confront that person. And then if there is still no repentance on the issue, then after a reasonable period of time, which the passage doesn't say exactly how long, there's a degree of wisdom that's involved, then the person is put out of the fellowship of the church. What does that look like? It looks like that person is no longer allowed to participate in the Lord's table. It looks like that person is treated essentially as an unbeliever, with hopes that they are in fact a believer, but treated as an unbeliever. We don't say, hey brother, how are you doing? Hey sister, how are you doing? We say, you need to believe in Jesus, right? So the disposition changes from you are one of us to we want you to be one of us, but you need to believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? And then the goal, and this is where I think sometimes we tend to forget, the goal is restoration. So the goal is not, this person has caused problems, let's get them out, we're done. Right? The goal is restoration. Okay? And then uh, we saw the example of 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, where at least the first two, possibly the third step, had gotten skipped, and it had become a public scandal, some kind of significant immorality, and Paul says the immediate solution is, it's at a point where you just have to put this person out of the church right now. And so uh, in our church bylaws, there are examples of, uh, it says something about like flagrant sins, that there are cases where there's not a year-long process of calling the person to repentance. If there's something very clear that has taken place, following the pattern in that passage, there may be uh, a, a reality of we can't follow all these steps because it's already at a point where it needs to be dealt with immediately. And that needs to be done carefully, wisely, with um, humility, but sin needs to be dealt with in such a way that we recognize none of us are perfect, but we cannot love sin, walk in sin, and assume that life is good with us in God. Okay? And then the last example, 2 Thessalonians 3, even something as seemingly unimportant in modern times as 
laziness and a lack of attention to details of our lives could, if it leads to particularly other sins like gossiping and being a busybody and all those sorts of things, be grounds for church discipline. And uh, let's be honest, most churches basically uh, follow the process of church discipline uh, over situations of divorce and immorality, and that's about it. But Paul said there are grounds for it on issues like laziness and gossiping. So God takes all of those sorts of things seriously. Again, the goal is that the church would confront the person, that it would not get to the point of the person being expelled from the church, and the eventual goal is restoration. So those are some of the things that we've been talking about the previous few weeks. Some of you weren't here, so I wanted to review them briefly. That leads us now to the final chapter of the book, Must Membership Look the Same Everywhere? He says here, the church has no name, it has no building, it is not registered with the city because the government would shut it down if it knew it existed. Should the way that Frank and Hans's church overseas practice membership look the same as a church in a populous western city like Washington, D.C., where he is at writing this book? The basic task and the tools are the same, but the structures or strategies might look a little different. The task, to be a distinct, marked-off society that through its very distinctness blesses the nations and garners praise for the Heavenly Father. The tools, the authority to guard the gospel, affirm credible professions of gospel faith, oversee Christian discipleship, teach discipleship disciples everything he's commanded, and to exclude false professors. So, would we agree, first of all, that the task is the same for every church? and the task as he's described it here. Okay, I mean, there's certainly a lot of things we could say about the task of the church, but to say it is a distinct group that because it is distinct has opportunity to bless the nations and bring praise to God, I think we would all agree that is the task that God's called us to, right? Um, the tools, the church has the authority to guard the gospel. So there is a, an important degree to which the church has to, as it talks about in First Timothy and other places, say, what is the gospel message? We're not going to change it. We're not going to try to improve on it. We're not going to alter it because we want people to listen and, and gather more, more readily. This is what the gospel is. Following that, here's someone who's heard the gospel message and says, I believe it. The church now has a responsibility to assess if that's the case. Somebody says, I want to come to the church and be a part of the church, the church has to say yes or no. And the church has the authority to do so, collectively, not individually. And that's where I think sometimes there have been challenges because we felt like it's our job individually to say, are you a believer, are you not a believer? Particularly when it comes to, for example, the setting of a funeral. Right? That ultimately is not something that we can say 100% because at the end of the day, God is the one who knows it. But the person, hopefully, is connected enough with a church that can say yes or no, that there is some basis for what we might say, right? Um, so, you know, if I was going to preach a funeral for someone, I would want to have a con conversation with that person's pastor, if it wasn't me, with fellow church members, if I didn't know anything about that person. Ideally, I mean, sometimes that's just not possible, because I do not want to be getting up there and saying, oh, so-and-so's in heaven, if there's really no reasonable expectation that that's the case. Um, and again, you have examples like the thief on the cross and other people in the Bible who were saved, as it were, barely, right? There's, there's not a great deal of time for there to be evidence of conversion. There's not um, 
there's not perhaps a great deal of spiritual growth. And in those cases, I think we have to be a lot more tentative in the sort of things that we say, right? But um, the church has a responsibility to be aware of these things. Uh, the idea of teaching disciples everything he's commanded. Is every church supposed to do that? Yes, right? Here's what is laid out in the New Testament, and for that matter, in the Old Testament is the foundation of it. Here's what God wants you to do. And if you say, I am a Christian, and then you teach false doctrine, live in a way that is contrary to what the gospel would call you to, the church ultimately has the responsibility to exclude people who are not following in that way. He says then, membership will look the same everywhere because all churches dwell in precisely the same context, enemy territory. So he's saying on the one hand, membership will look the same everywhere. At its core, we are outposts in enemy territory. So how does the idea of the church being in enemy territory affect how membership looks? Consider issues like easy believism or my parents go to church as threats that undermine true gospel-based salvation experience. And we could think of other ones too, but how does the fact that we're in enemy territory affect our view of membership? Bob? Lots of uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay. So is it our job, ultimately, to create a perfect church? No. Who's going to reveal that in the end? God is, okay? So what should that drive us to, first of all? His word and prayer, right? Prayer that God will work in people's hearts. Prayer that God will reveal who truly knows him. Prayer that God will give us wisdom and courage to do the things he's called us to do, even if they are uncomfortable or difficult, right? Or even just hard work. Is it an easy task when you've had a long week and you're tired or whatever else to come to church and say, it is my responsibility to minister to the people around me? Not necessarily, but God's called us to do it. So we need to ask him for his help to do the thing that he's called us to do, right? And I don't mean that it's bad work, but it's still hard work, right? I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it can't be joyful, but it can be hard work to do what God has called us to do as a church. It can be hard work to say, Something doesn't seem right. And if I ask someone this question, then that person might get mad at me or whatever else. But that doesn't mean we can forgo those conversations just because they're awkward or difficult, right? And so we need prayer that God will give us the confidence to say what we need to say. The humility to say, I could be completely wrong about this, right? And that person might say, I'm fine, but actually there's something I've been meaning to talk to you about. And here's this concern I have about you. That's a complete possibility in one of those scenarios as well. The fact that we're in enemy territory means that Satan is constantly trying to undermine God's work in our hearts and the hearts of other people, right, in the context of the church. What other things as well? Uh, flip over to Acts 20. Maybe this will be helpful on this question. Acts 20, the end of the chapter. Um, how about verses 29 and 30? I'll read those for us. Acts 20, 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering night and day for three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So where do the threats come from? And? And without, everywhere, right? But some of them are going to come from outside. Oh, have you heard about so-and-so? This person is an amazing teacher. You need to listen to him. Um, hey, how about that book, Jesus Calling? It just seems like this great uh, spiritual experience where this, this lady really seems close to God, right? And she basically makes up all these conversations that she says she's had with God and then treats them as though they are additional revelation on, on a parallel with the Bible, right? That's a dangerous thing, right? That's a really popular book. I don't know how many people's houses I've seen it at, uh, especially when I would go visit people in the assisted living um, when I was back at Inner City. And somebody would say, hey, it's a great book, read it. And, and I'm not saying all of it's bad, but there's enough of it in there that is her opinions being presented as though they're a message from God that it's very concerning to me, right? So that would be an example uh, of something arising from without. What about something arising from within? Something arising from within could be someone saying, hey, let's just make some issue the issue for the church. Okay? Let me give you an example of this. When I first came here, there was um, a young lady who was basically saying the issue of head coverings is the hill to die on, and I don't care if the church splits down the middle and fragments into a million pieces. I'm going to push my agenda and that's going to be the thing that happens. Which ironically, given the fact that the point of head coverings was to follow authority structures in the church, was the complete opposite of what it was supposed to mean, right? So um, I'm not saying she's not a believer. I'm not saying that we shouldn't examine what the Bible says. But I am saying that someone who comes into a church and pushes one issue without any concern for the unity of the church and without any concern for what all of the things are supposed to be, and in pride says, here's what I know, you all need to follow me, that's a dangerous threat for the church. And you can agree or disagree with how I interpreted some of the passages that were the occasion of her leaving, but what it comes down to is this. Here are three potential interpretations of the passage. We have to do what it says because it's a command for all time. We don't have to do what it says because there's a command for their time. There's a principle that we need to follow that applies across a variety of cultures. And that third position is what I tried to present to you. Um, and the response that I received was, she told me, well, I think you're blaspheming God to say that, right? To which I said, you can't be here. We cannot undermine the unity of the church because you've got in your head this is the issue. Now, is it an issue to consider? Absolutely. Are the authority structures in the church and roles and all those, should we think about those things? Absolutely. What is the church about? The church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if people are off fighting over secondary or tertiary issues and forgetting about the gospel, then we're exactly like the Corinthian church that says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. I think that we should speak in tongues. I think that we should prophesy. And instead of presenting what we were supposed to be and do to the world, we are caught up in all of these things that just somebody walks into the church, like the church at Corinth, and they're like, wow, what a great place. 
That guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law. These people are fighting over here. All these things are going on. How does that help the cause of the gospel? It does not, right? So these are the sorts of threats that we have to be aware of. We are in enemy territory. We tend to be complacent in the context of the local church. We're like, this is, uh, this is uh, and it should be. This is a safe place for us to gather. This is a comfortable place. We know the people there. Yes. But our picture of this should not be, although the context could look externally like a family reunion, right? The picture the Bible uses far more often is, here's soldiers in the barracks getting ready to go out the next time, right? So when we think enemy outpost, we think we are gathering and we are beaten up by the battle, we've got wounds to be bandaged, we need food because we're tired from the fighting, we need water because we're thirsty, we need all of these things and we're going to go out again the next day, right? And we are often far too complacent in the context of the local church. And we're like, I showed up. I liked the music. We said some things. We had a few laughs. And I'm not saying all that's bad, but I'm saying we forget that we are in enemy territory. We forget that Satan is like a savage lion wandering around wanting to rip you limb from limb. And if we forget that, we are in terrible danger, right? And that can be from false doctrine. That can be from issues of disunity in the church. That can be from any number of things. But we cannot take this lightly. This is serious business, right? So, next question. How does societal complexity affect how membership looks? And this is something where I was kind of thinking about, and I'm not 100% sure I agree with him, but it's at least worth considering. So here's his quote. He says, are you with, this is in his context of, um, of uh, being in Washington, D.C., larger church, all those sorts of things. He says, are you with Jesus? I can't tell. You show up on Sunday morning. You live 30 minutes away. I have no idea what your life looks like during the week. You've been church hopping for years, and you say you love Jesus, but which Jesus are you talking about? Now, I'm not saying all of those apply to us, but they could, right? Some of you live a good distance from where we gather, right? Some of you, unless I make a specific effort, I don't know what's going on in your life during the week, right? So we're in a different context than if we all lived a block away from the church, walked there every Sunday, or, you know, two miles from the church and rode our wagons in or whatever, right? We would know each other a lot better in that context versus the one where we're at right now, right? So the more that society is complex, both in terms of ideas floating around and practical realities like distance from one another and realities of our busy schedules. All of those things create challenges for carrying out membership in a biblical way, right? So, do we agree that that should be a factor that we consider when we are um, evaluating someone for church membership? Should we consider all those things? And if so, how would that then affect what church membership looks like? What might be some practical results of saying, we don't know people as well as we should, but we want to add them as members? What are some ways that we can help uh, work around those issues? Bob? 
Okay, what might that look like? Yeah, it could be more than potlucks. It could be having someone who's a prospective member over to your house so you get to know them a little bit better, right? Uh, what's another reality? If somebody walks up and says, hey, I want to join your church, and you say, hey, I don't know anything about you, would it be sin to add them immediately? Not necessarily. I mean, we see the example of that in Acts 2. But would there be, perhaps be a degree of wisdom of saying, let's wait a few weeks, get to know you a little bit better? Probably. And so I think that's the point he's making, which I agree with the point. I think the tension is, like anything, we can push it too far. Some people will say, well, you need to have a 12-week membership course, or you need to go a year to the church before you can join. I think that's pushing it too far, particularly the second example, right? Because there's a degree to which, if someone is genuinely a believer, and they're going back to that battle imagery, they need help and encouragement and family and camaraderie and all those sorts of things. We don't want to say, yeah, we'll get to it in a year, right? I, I don't think that that is, a, even acknowledging those issues, I don't think, yes? Can it be a good point? Um, can it be that we can offer them as if they were a member without making them a member of the kind of things that they would need as Christians? Okay, so that's a good question. What would be some examples of the kinds of things you feel like they would need? So, encouragement and direction and wisdom and comfort when they're going through struggles and things like that. Okay, sure. I mean, I think that we can certainly do those things. I, I do think our goal still should be in a reasonable period of time to see them added to the fellowship. But um, I'm trying to think, I, uh, for those who have joined more recently, I feel like we probably started having a conversation about membership you guys were probably here three to four months, and then we started talking about it, right? I think probably the same. Yeah. So, um, and I think there's a reality of some people are willing to approach me or one of the deacons and say, I want to join the church. And some people um, maybe need to be nudged a little bit, just to think about it. Not that we're trying to force someone to be added to the church, right? But, um, so kind of in my mind, if someone hasn't, if they've been attending regularly for several months and they haven't said anything, I might come up and say, hey, have you thought about joining the church? And I think that's one thing that I could do, right? One thing that all of us could do would be, you know, uh, if the person's willing to stay on a Sunday afternoon, have lunch, sit with that person, ask some questions, get to know them, right? Can someone lie for six or eight weeks in a row? Absolutely. People do that sort of thing all the time. But is there a, a decreasing chance that what they're saying is fake if a lot of people have a lot of conversations with that person? Yeah, I mean, the more that we put effort into getting to know someone, the more that we can work around some of these issues. Quite honestly, these are realities that don't just deal with church membership on the front end of people getting in, but deal with our ability to minister well to one another in the course of the week because we have to make a significant effort, you know, for... Um, the Tinos to know what's going on with the Lambs an hour apart, or for the Lambs to know what's going on with the Hodsons an hour apart, right? There has to be a more significant effort, right? There has to be a more disciplined effort on my part to be aware of uh, what's going on in your lives, right? And so I have not done this perfectly, but I've tried to, you know, a lot of the guys, hey, let's go for lunch, let's talk, or I'll text you and I'll say, hey, can I pray for you? Can I be more disciplined and consistent and do that at more regular intervals? Absolutely. But these are just things that I've been trying to do 
so that I know what's going on in your lives and we can um, be encouraged and helped in these ways. A challenge for um, both in our culture but perhaps even more in some other cultures would be this issue of societal favor or disfavor. So that's the next question there. Societal favor or disfavor, how does that affect how membership looks? Uh, if you're a Christian in a Muslim country, what's the general attitude of the culture toward what you believe? Extreme yeah, extreme hostility. What effect does that then have on the number of people who are willing to fake it? Does it go up or down? Well, go, yeah, I mean, it would go, you would have to be really sincere if you're going to commit to it, right? So the number of people who are faking it, theoretically, is going to be significantly less because if the cost of being a part of this is losing family connections, losing job, losing freedom, losing your life, it's a much more serious commitment, right? Which it should always be, but in a setting like ours, in contrast, is it easy for someone to fake it and be a part of a church for a long time? What are some things that allow that to happen in churches? Sandra? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So if we're not hospitable and loving, someone can sort of be isolated over here. Yeah. I've met a number of people who leave churches as social membership. Okay. For business purposes, I sell insurance. I can meet more people. Okay. A contractor. I get more customers. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so if someone has this attitude of this is just a place to find more business uh, links and connections, how would we be able to become aware of that? Again, I think it comes down to time, right? Those of you who are married, think back to when you met your spouse and the process of getting to know that person. It involves time, right? It involves asking questions. It involves good and difficult conversations, right? It's not just, hey, I just met you. Love at first sight. Let's get married, right? I'm not saying that that can never happen, uh, rather that that does never happen in some cases, but I think there's a little bit of uh, being naive to think that that is perhaps... Uh, back up for a second. At the end of the day, marriage is a commitment that you make before God, right? And so you can say, I choose to love this person regardless of all the stuff I find out down the road, right? It helps to have had more intense conversations ahead of time before you make that commitment. That's the point I'm trying to make. And in the same way, because the church is a family and a serious commitment, if we can have some serious conversations before someone gets added to the membership, it potentially reduces the likelihood of someone joins the church and then three weeks later they're leaving because they realize, oh, I didn't realize all of what was involved with this, or I didn't agree with what they say, or 
Um, here's all the ways I'm living in terrible sin that I never talked to anybody about because no one ever thought to ask, right? And when I say ask, I don't mean that you're, our job is to go up and say, hey, are you committing adultery? Do you lie all the time? Do you steal from your boss? I just mean if we have conversations about what Christianity is supposed to be like with people, God can use that to convict their hearts and say, oh, you know, I, there was a couple uh, when I was down in their city that they were living together. They weren't married. They were living as though they were husband and wife. They came to join the church. Someone just said, hey, God says you can't live this way. You can't join the church, first of all, until you address this. And uh, then there's all these other connected issues that need to be worked through. So they said, you know what, you're right. So they moved to separate apartments. They joined the church. They did end up getting married later, but it was a process they had to work through, right? And if someone hadn't been willing to have that conversation and get to know them a little bit, it's e it would be have been far easier to sweep it under the rug, but far you know not honoring it all to God, right, and not good for the the church. Um, any other thoughts on the societal favor or disfavor and the dangers that are lurking with that? If Christianity is viewed with hostility, yeah, right, versus acceptance. I could imagine being in a church uh, in a, another country or something where you'd be afraid of spies and infiltration from government. Okay. All right, so that's an excellent segue to the next question. Is there a place for membership classes and roles in the American church, for example, but not in the underground church? So along the lines of what you said, is it good or bad to have a written list of everybody that's part of your church if you're in a place that's trying to find them and arrest them? Probably bad to have a written list, right? So in our case, I have an Excel chart, right? So I can say, here's the people who are members of our church that we voted into membership. Here are the people I specifically need to pray for. Here are the people that I need to make sure I'm checking on. We have a list, right? We have a list where we keep track of when people are here regularly or not. Again, the goal is not to spy on you. The goal is just to say, hey, you've been gone for a couple of weeks. We've got to check on you, especially if it's been a decent period of time, right? Um, and that's not a... Uh, that's just because it is really easy to have false perceptions in our minds about things, right? When I was visiting people in the hospital, if I did not keep a list in some way, whether in my head or written down, um, written down worked a lot better for me. If I didn't keep a list, it might be two weeks between when I visit somebody and I might have thought it was you know, three days ago, right? Just because time is a funny thing. But in a situation where there's persecution, you just have to say, we're gonna memorize it and we're not going to write it down, right? Because that could be a really dangerous thing. So the fact that they don't have a list, they have a bad membership? No. There is theoretically a church that has no membership list whatsoever, but has a clear awareness of who is part of their church. Is the, is the list of membership a 100% mandate? I think we'd have to say no, but it can be a helpful tool, particularly in our context, right? So it does say in Acts 2 that they were added to the awareness. They are a part of this group of people who profess faith in Christ, right? That could look like a written list. That could look like an electronic list. That could look like a list in someone's head. Um, the important issue is not primarily the format as the awareness of these are the people that the pastors and elders are required to watch out for their souls 
and these are the people that we're committed together collectively to care for one another, right? That's the ultimate goal, and there's a lot of tools that can make it happen. Uh, what are some other must-haves when we think about the difference between uh, a church in a persecuted country versus a church like in America where our degree of persecution is basically being made fun of, right? What, what are some other differences in, that are, uh, let's take it on the issue of baptism. Do we still have to do baptism? The logistics get a lot trickier? Yeah. So again, in our context, it might be we have 50 people watching. In their context, it might just be a handful, right? Is it still legitimate baptism? I think we'd say yes, right? It's not just me hanging out at my house and my brother dunks me in the pool and I call, they got bad. No, I mean, there's something. It's purposeful, it's intentional, it's in connection with the church, uh, but it doesn't have, there's not a set number of people that have to be there. I mean, think about Philip and the guy from Ethiopia, right? It was at least three people, but that might have been all that it was, right? And it was still a legitimate thing, okay? What are some other, other issues connected with accepted versus persecuted church that help? We have a physical building. A persecuted church might meet in people's houses. Yeah. Meet in a building owned by somebody who's just uh, helping out. Meet outside in a park. Gather out in a remote area, right? It might be, what about structure of a church service? Might look very different, right? Might just be a couple of people quoting some Bible verses, maybe singing, maybe not at every one of them. Um, I, think, I think there's some core elements that should be strived, but you don't need a building. You don't need a choir. You don't need a kid's Sunday school. You don't need air conditioning, you don't need necessarily to gather for food in the way that we might tend to think we would need to regularly. There's, there's all of these things that at the very basic core, if you boil it down, it is there needs to be a gathering of God's people for mutual encouragement and getting ready to go back out and do God's work, right? Sandra. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We we have the question of here's however many Bibles we have, which one am I going to bring? Um, we have them in the pew, right? If you're in a persecuted country, you don't have pews that have Bibles in them, right? And you know, uh, what was I listening to? Maybe maybe something, were you telling me this, Bob, that there were people who had Bibles and they were trying to memorize parts of Scripture? And I was talking with somebody about people who were in jail, right? Or listening to something. In another country, they were put in jail and, and they got fragments of the Bible and they would memorize them and then the guards would confiscate them and then they'd get more of them and then they'd get confiscated and just a very different scenario than we have, right? Um, that was in a book. Was it a book? Yeah. What book? It was either... Um, yeah, it happened in the uh, Scott Smuggler. I think it also happened in... Uh, uh, it, something similar to that happened in at least two or three... Yeah. I mean, there, this is a repeated theme, like Adoniram Judson, you know, all these other people. Like, there's all these scenarios in which these sorts of things happen. 
So um, last point, some kind of conversation needs to happen before a professing Christian and a church say, I do, in this covenant-like relationship called church membership. And a church needs to know who all its members are. Before we get to the do you agree or disagree, I'm going to segue off of those couple of things we were just talking about to two things. One is, at its core, our church and any other church is a relatively simple set of expectations God has for us. So, I want to encourage you to continue to pray for what we should do with our church, right? And when I say our church, some of it's the church building aspect of it, but a lot of it is that God would stir our hearts to say these are the essential things we must be doing as Christians. We need to draw close to one another. We need to have a compassionate, ready heart to witness to the lost around us. And we need to be fervently involved in the ministry God's called us to. And so... Because our church has been around for a long time, because we've had a comfortable setting for a long time, yes, we've had to do a lot of work on it over the years, but we have had a recognizable place that is paid for, that is familiar, all those sorts of things. What is easy to happen for churches in that sort of context is this. We think that we are doing all that God is calling us to do as long as we show up regularly. For the services. And God wants a whole lot more out of our lives than showing up regularly for services. And I'm not saying that we should move locations or drastically change things simply so we are out of our comfort zone and having to do ministry in a different way. But I do think it's something we should prayerfully consider. This is not a, I think we should do this, but this is a, me thinking of an example to share with you, right? Every time I drive up to Gary and Beth's house, kids' grandparents, um, I drive through Pontiac. Pontiac's a needy place. I don't know what churches are there. I know that's where the women and teens that we've been doing the fundraiser for is at. Um, the pregnancy center. I'm not saying we should move our church to Pontiac. But are there potentially places like that in our area? I'm not saying this isn't a needy area either, right? We should be willing to pray and say, what collectively would you put on our hearts, God, as being a group of people who need to be reached that we are willing to pour our efforts into? We say, okay, we're going to pour our efforts into reaching the people who have lived right around this building. All right, what do we need to do to make that happen? Fix enough stuff on the church, spend enough money so that we don't have to do maintenance projects all the time, so that we can do more outreach events in the summer? That's one option, right? Um, find a different place to meet that leads, needs less maintenance so that we can do all those sorts of things? That's another option. Um, look at where there are clusters of people in our church and say we're going to do Bible studies in three different sites and try to start three different churches? That sounds like a crazy thing to say, but it is theoretically a possibility, right? 
there are tons of things that we could do to say, here's the mission that God is calling us to do. What are we going to do to accomplish it? And so we just need to keep coming before God in prayer. So along those lines, uh, I think a good example for us, not that we have to do everything that he did, but um, George Mueller was someone who fervently prayed to God. I've been reading his autobiography lately. I know several of you have read it too. And we're going to start going through that in Sunday school and just looking at some of the things that God did in his conversion dramatically, some of the principles that he became convinced of scripturally when it came to preaching or how to fund God's work or dependence and regular prayer on God and just see how God amazingly worked through his life. My goal, like I said, is not that we do everything that George Mueller did. But my goal is for those of you who, like me, tend to say what are the pros and cons of a situation and just make it this extremely logical whatever kind of a decision and not have proper regard for God and his work, that can be a corrective. For those of you who say, I feel like I'm over here, there are examples where he was very reasoned and thoughtful in the way that he approached things, and that could be a corrective to, I just act on a whim, right? And so I think you know these examples of godly people who have gone before us can be helpful, so we're going to start walking through that together. I sent you an email, and um, I can even put a piece of paper on the back table for those of you who would prefer to let me know that way. I just need a count of how many copies of the book I need to order for next Sunday, and we'll just start talking through some of it, and you can catch up, so it's not a big deal. And then if you say, no, I'd rather download it on my Kindle or listen to it as an audiobook, that's totally fine, too. But we're going to start working through that in Sunday school for the next uh, couple months. Yes, Bob? If you have a library card, is it, it is available on Hoopla, so it's free so for the audio book. I didn't check, check to see if the ebook was, but... Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's lots of different options. I think it's maybe like a dollar or two on Kindle and then, you know, but we can get some print copies too. So I'll put, uh, I'll just write on the back of this piece of paper and we'll put it as a sign-up sheet out there and that'll be what we're looking at going forward. All right, we don't have time to talk about the last question, but you can think about it. Tina? Would you like uh, us to put what we're going to do? I mean, are we going to get it on Kindle or, you know, on our phones? No, no, all I want on this piece of paper is if you need a paper copy, write down your name and how many. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll write that here in a minute. Let's close in prayer and then we'll head on to the service. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these things together. Pray that you would bless the rest of this morning in Christ's name. Amen.